Chapter 2, Part F of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter 2, Part F. It would be futile to relate, even if I could recall them, all the various methods and devices which were suggested and rejected, or tried and proved failures in the attempt to rescue the tank drivers. Press and radio followed every daring essay and carefully planned endeavor until the last vicarious quiver had been wrung from a fascinated public. For twenty-four hours there was no room on the front pages of the newspapers for anything but the latest on the prisoners of the grass, as they were at first called. Later, when hope for their rescue had diminished, and they were forced from the limelight to make way for later developments, they were known simply as heroes in the fight against the weird enemy. For the grass had not paused chivalrously during the interval. On the contrary, it seemed to take renewed vigor from the victims it had entombed. House after house, block after block, were engulfed. The names of those forced from their homes were no longer treated individually and written up as separate stories, but listed in alphabetical order like battle casualties. Miss Frances, frantically trying to get all her specimens and equipment moved from her kitchen in time, had been ousted from the peeling stucco and joined those who were finding shelter, with some difficulty, in other parts of the city. The southernmost runners crept down toward Hollywood Boulevard, where every effort was being marshaled to combat them, and the northernmost wandered around and seemingly lost themselves in the desert of sagebrush and greasewood about Hollywood Bowl. Traffic through Cahuenga Pass, the great artery between Los Angeles and its tributary valley, was threatened with disruption. But while the parent body was spreading out, its offspring, as Miss Frances foresaw, had come into existence. Dozens of nuclei were reported, some close at hand, others far away as the sunset strip in Hollywood land. These smaller bodies were vigorously attacked as soon as discovered, but of course they had in every case made progress too great to be countered, for they were at first naturally indistinguishable from ordinary devil grass, and by the time their true character was determined, so rapid was their growth, they were already beyond all possibility of control. The grass was now everyone's primary thought, replacing the moon among lovers, the income tax among individuals of importance, the weather among strangers, and illness among ladies no longer interested in the moon, as topics of conversation. Old friends, meeting casually after many years' lapse, greeted each other with, What's the latest on the grass? Radio comedians fired gagmen with weeks of service behind them for failure to provide botanical quips, or, conversely, hired raw riders who had inhabited the fringes of Hollywood since Max Senate days on the strength of a single agristological illusion. Newspapers ran long articles on Synodon Dactylon, and the editors of their garden sections were roused from the somnolence into which they had sunk upon receiving their appointment and shoved into double-leaded, bold-faced position. Textbooks on botany began outselling popular novels, and a mere work of fiction having the accidental title, Greener Than You Think, was catapulted onto the best-seller list before anyone realized it wasn't an academic discussion of the family Graminia. 
Contributors to scientific fiction magazines burst blood vessels happily turning out 10,000 words a day describing their hero's adventures amid the red grass of Mars or the blue grass of Venus after they had single-handed, with the help of a death ray and the heroine's pure love, conquered the green grass of Tellus. Professors, shy and otherwise, were lured from their classrooms to lecture before ladies' clubs, hitherto sacred to the accents of transoceanic celebrities and Eleanor Roosevelt. There they competed on alternate forums with literate gardeners and stuttering horticultural amateurs. Stolen, rhizome, and colm became words replacing crankshaft and piston in the popular vocabulary. The puerile reports, Goots fabricated under my name, as the man responsible for the phenomenon, were syndicated in newspapers from coast to coast, and a query as to rates was received from the Daily Mail. Brother Paul's exhortations on the radio increased in both length and intensity as the grass spread. Pastors of other churches and conductors of similar programs denounced him as misled. Real estate operators, fearful of all this talk about the grass bringing doom and so depreciating the value of their properties, complained to the Federal Communications Commission. Sunday schools voted him man of the year, and hundreds of motherly ladies stored the studio with cakes baked by their own hands. Brother Paul's answer to endorser and detractor alike was to buy up more radio time. No one doubted the government would at length awaken from its apathy and counter the menace swiftly and efficiently, as always before in crises when the country was threatened. The nation with the highest rate of production per man-hour, the greatest efficiency per machine, the greatest wealth per capita, and the greatest vision per mind's eye was not going to be defeated by a mere weed, however overgrown. While waiting the inevitable action, an equally inevitable solution, the public had all the excitement of war, without suffering the accompanying privations and bereavements. The grass was a nuisance, but a nuisance with titillating compensations. Most people felt like children whose schoolhouse had burned down. They were sorry. They knew there'd be a new one. They were quite ready to help build it. But in the meantime, it was fun. The Daily Intelligencer was gorged with letters from its readers on the subject of the grass. Many of them wanted to know what a newspaper of its standing meant by devoting so much space to an ephemeral happening, while many more asked indignantly why more space wasn't given to something affecting their very lives and fortunes. Communist party members, using improbable pen names, asked passionately if this was not a direct result of the country's failure to come to a thorough understanding with the Soviet Union. Terrified property holders irately demanded that something, something, be dumb before real estate became as valueless in Southern California as it already was in Red Russia. Technocrats demanded the government be immediately turned over to a committee of engineers and competent agronomists who would deal with the situation as it deserved after harnessing the wasted energy of the populace. Nationalists hinted darkly that the whole thing was the result of a plot by the elders of Zion and that Kaplan's delicatessen, in conspiracy with A. Cohen notions, was at the bottom of the grass. Brother Paul wrote, and his letter was printed, for he now advertised his radio programs in the columns of the Intelligencer, that Caesar, presumably the state of California, 
had been chastened for arrogating to itself things not to be rendered unto Caesar, and the tankmen had deservedly perished for their sacrilege. The letter aroused fury. The followers of Brother Paul either didn't read the intelligencer or were satisfied their leader needed no championing if they did, and other letters poured in calling for various expressions of popular disapproval, from simple boycott up through tarring and feathering, to plain and elaborated, with gasoline and castration, lynching. The grass was a hot topic. With its acute perception of the popular taste, Lafacis's paper printed not only most of the communications, the unprintable ones were circulated among the staff till they wore out or disappeared mysteriously in the gents' room but maps showing the daily progress of the weed, guesses as to the duration of the plague by local prophets, learned articles by scientists, opinions of statesmen, views of popular entertainers, in fact, anything having any remote connection with the topic of the day. The paper even went further and offered a reward of $10,000 to anyone advancing a suggestion leading to the destruction of the intruder. Its circulation jumped at the expense of less perspicacious rivals, and the incoming mail, already many times normal, swelled to staggering proportions. The contest was taken with deadly seriousness, for the livelihood of many of the paper's readers was suddenly threatened by its subject, and from a new quarter. In the same issue as the offered reward, there appeared an interview with the accredited head of the organized motion picture producers, this retiring gentleman was rumored to be completely illiterate, an unquestionable slander, for he had written checks to support every cause dedicated to keeping wages where they belonged, and seeing the wage earners didn't waste the money so benevolently supplied by their employers. I got the details of the interview from the interviewer himself. The magnet, he had no objection to the description, had been irritable and minced no words. The grass was bad alike for production and box office, taking everyone's mind off the prime business of making and viewing motion pictures. It was injuring the industry, and he couldn't conceal the fact that the industry, speaking through his mouth and with his vocabulary, was annoyed. Unless this disgraceful episode ends within ten days, he had said sternly, the motion picture industry will move to Florida. It was an ultimatum. Southern Californians heard and trembled. The last time this dread interdiction had been invoked, in the midst of a bitter election fight, it had sent them scurrying to the polls to do their benefactor's bidding. Now, indeed, the grass menace would be taken seriously. The next day's paper had news of more immediate concern to me. The governor had appointed a special committee to investigate the situation and the first two witnesses to be called were Josephine Spencer Francis and Albert Weiner. William Rufus Lafassacy was as enthusiastic as his phlegmatic nature permitted. He called me into his office and half-raised the snuff-box off the desk, as though to offer me an unwelcome pinch. "'You're a made man now, Weiner,' he said thinking better of his generosity and putting the snuff-box back. Your name will be in headlines from Alabama to Alberta, and all due to the intelligence, sir. I would have resented this as a gross misappropriation of credit, for surely all obligation was on the other side. 
had I not been deeply disturbed by the prospect of being hailed before this committee like a criminal before the bar of justice. "'I'd much rather avoid this unpleasant notoriety, Mr. Lefassacy,' I protested. "'Since the intelligencer, for reasons best known to itself, chooses not to avail itself of my contributions, but prints my name over words I have not written, there could be no possible objection to my slipping away to Nevada until this investigation ends.' His face became a pretty shade of plum. Weiner, you're a thief, a petty, caging, sly, larcenous, pilfering, bloody thief. You take the daily intelligencer's honest dollars without a qualm, I, with a smirk on your imbecile face, proposing with the cool impudence of the born embezzler to return no value for them. Weiner, you forget. Get yourself. The intelligencer picked you out of a gutter. A nauseous, dung-spattered, and thoroughly fitting gutter. And it pays you well. Mark that, you feeble-minded counterfeit of a confidence man. Pays you well. Not for your futile, lecherous pawings at the chastity of the English language, but out of the boundless generosity which only a newspaper with a great soul can have. And what do you propose to do in gratitude? To ruin, to flee, to hide from the expression of authority, to bring disgrace upon the very newspaper whose munificence pumps life into your boneless, soulless, gutless carcass. Not another word, not a sound, not a ghoulish syllable from your ineffective vocabulary. Out of my presence before I lose my temper. Get down to whatever smoke-filled and tastelessly decorated room that committee is meeting in, and do not leave it while it is in session, neither to eat, sleep, nor move those bowels whose possession I gravely doubt. You hear me, Wiener? End of chapter 2, part F.